Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Uh, I'm Heather Bronsanti, like always. Um, but today I'm super excited. Um, my guest today is Dr. Erica Bachnick. Hi, Erica. Hi, Heather. <laughs> um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a minute. Um, but I have to say that I have to tell everybody why why I'm so excited that you're here. Um, in April, you were at um, the Indiana AEYC Higher Education Forum. And um, I went sort of begrudgingly thinking it was going to be a big, boring, fac- like statewide, a boring faculty meeting on a statewide level. Um, and you and, um, oh, I have to look again because I don't remember the name. You and Holly Grophy Herb spoke for the first part of the morning. And I was so glad I was there. It just really, um, you just really hit so many important things um, in in new ways um, when we're talking about, and you were talking about mental health, I'll, I'll say the, the topic was centering infant and early childhood mental health and its relational roots. Such a refreshing way to think about this um, and to think about social and emotional learning. Um, I tend to get frustrated with the way those conversations go sometimes. Um, so thank you for that. And now I'll let you tell folks what you want them to know about you. Well, I really do want folks to know that um, there are new conversations to be had about these topics. So that in some ways, that's actually the best introduction I could have. That's what uh-huh. I care most about. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Bachnick. <laughs> the most important thing I do in life is I am a Jewish mom to three kids, 12, 8, and 5, and they are little miracles. Uh-huh. I'm a family therapist. I am a professor. Uh, most recently of educational psychology, although I made a big, bold move this year at the top of my career um, and decided to leave academia and try to get more involved in spaces where um, I could change and impact and contribute to the dialogue out there about children's mental health, family development. And in fact, it's led me into bigger, bolder conversations about mental health in general and unexpected places like corporate environments. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'm the founder of a consultation practice called Convo, which is working exactly to that end. It's a flexible approach to supporting mental health. We book um, workshops, uh, consultation conversations, in addition to one-off uh, convos between therapists and parents. Sometimes you have a question and you don't need ongoing talk therapy, mm-hmm. but you just need to have a good conversation with an expert and Convo is here for that. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, so let's start by, <clears throat> excuse me, just sort of, uh, I think we talked, I think this was off mic and I'm not repeating myself, but a minute ago I talked about my frustration with um, a writing project I'm doing and looking for a good definition of infants uh, or early childhood mental health. And everything I found really centered around um, children's behavior or their success, their ability to be successful in school, and not just about well-being. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, while when I looked at some, you know, non-specific definitions of mental health that I just assume are are geared towards adults, it was much more about well-being and um and per, a sort of psychological safety and well-being and not not so much about what the world gets from it. <laughs> like it was with infants and and children. So, um so when you are talking about mental health at this age range, what what does that mean? What's your definition of that? Well, Heather, I'm going to tell you that over my career, I have struggled like you to articulate this these ideas in a way that I feel like will really help people move the conversation mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. um, I'm happy to tell you, though, that uh, Holly and some other colleagues, and I, including Dr. Ioma Aruka, um, a very uh, important expert in the field of early childhood, particularly in focusing on Black children and their flourishing. Mm -hmm. We all just finished a book chapter that will be forthcoming in the World Association for Infant Mental Health Handbook. Wow. Um, you can, it's done. I can send it to you. you can, I'd you love can it. Thank you. Yeah. Us. Um, <laughs> and we really spent a long time talking about that question, because we know there's a lot we're getting wrong. The mm -hmm. children's mental health crisis is skyrocketing. And this, despite being in an information super age. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly something that we're not understanding. Mm -hmm. And so where we landed is that mental wellness is belongingness. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I told you, Heather, I have a tendency to sort of deep dive a little bit here and there because I think really getting to new information has required a lot of dialogue and conversation and being creative and thinking outside the box. So <laughs> you don't mind. I'd uh, like to give you like my two, I don't know how long it's going to take, but my little spiel on yeah. why we are where we are. Okay. So that we can be prepared to think differently about what mental wellness is, because I think we're all really invested in a particular idea about it. And you're right that even though in the adult literature, perhaps we're more courageous about naming um, kind of a personal sense of thriving, um, still all of our conceptualizations and treatment strategies for children and adults alike are very much about something that we're calling mental health in the service of productivity. Mm -hmm. And whether that is behavioral alignment with systems, which is what you're naming in childhood, or in adulthood, it is the same. It's about emotional and behavioral, typically suppression, but alignment with um, ideas around being productive mm -hmm. and contributing to an industrialized society. That is how we frame mental health. Mm -hmm. And what is really, I think, fascinating, but also bizarre when you really name this and see this is that our entire idea of mental wellness is very narrowly rooted in Greek philosophy. Um, and it's strange because, A, this were, was a lot of really brilliant people who are just getting the ball rolling in mm -hmm. one culture, in one context, in one time point in human history without all of the access to other cultural ideas and wisdoms and to the kind of science that we're producing in this day and age, mm -hmm. we're still operating under the very same definitions of mental health. <laughs> so wild. Descartes uh, believed, and Hy Hypatia 
um, and some other philosophers of that age believed in a separation between reason, cognition, and emotion, mm-hmm. really naming emotion and passions as problematic, self-defeating, and that we need to engage in rational thought to decrease their impact. Doesn't that sound like exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what we're still doing? Yes. Um you know, uh, the, the proverb, the quote, I think, therefore I am Uh the idea that selfhood is defined by rational thought. And that, um, I believe it's Aristotle, maybe Plato. I think it's Aristotle advanced the idea that happiness is the goal of life and to be happy, you are to find what your individual purpose is that would drive you towards it. Isn't that American rugged individualism? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But there's <laughs> so much more wisdom throughout the world to draw from and to mm-hmm. consider. And taking a lot of it together, really doing a little bit more for me, learning on um, African and indigenous knowledge systems. Uh, I've done a lot of reading lately. What really speaks to me is a lot of philosophy from black womanists and black feminists um, like uh, Patricia Hill Collins, Bell Hooks, and really thinking more broadly about what is human purpose? What do we understand? Mm about meaning, what do, what do all of these big thinkers say about that? And then how can we understand what it would mean to be mentally healthy, thinking about mental states in their broadness, emotions, uh, thoughts, beliefs, pa- patterns, mental patterns, physical sensations, these are all mental states. What would it mean to be mentally healthy in a way that serves human purpose? Mm-hmm. And so we've really come to this idea of belongingness as the central drive, as the central thing it means to be human and achieving a healthy state of belongingness, which Mm -hmm. means I am whole and free in my environments. And belongingness also means I, I understand my impact in the world, that this is the state of mental health and wellness. Uh Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated on that morning that I was uh, listening, listening to you to speak was that it seemed to me like you were intentionally choosing, um, uh, very specific language vocabulary to change the way we typically think about the conversation. <laughs> so even just this, the way, cause we, <clears throat> the way that you're talking about belongingness um uh is is one of those examples and i think also um a minute ago you talked about flourishing mm-hmm. um instead of just even just thriving like just bringing a new word in that we don't usually use in our everyday stuff it's, you know in early childhood is what i'm mostly familiar with um I just discovered, and I had to put her on a back burner for a minute because I had so much to do at work this week, but I just discovered um, Darsha Narvaez uh, and her work on on child flourishing. Um, And so I can't wait to dive back into that. Um, But another example of of that, that that sort of choice of words and and using different language to to encourage us to think differently um, 
we talk in early childhood a lot about how relationships matter and interactions are so important, but then you phrased it, um, you used the phrases uh, relational safety and relational um, savoring. And that had, that had a big impact on me. And I've kind of been tooling around with that in my, in my brain since I heard you. Um, so I, I would like to ask you just to kind of talk about what that means, how that might be a different conversation than typical conversations about interactions and relationships. So I want to talk about this idea of psychological safety first. If okay. That's yeah. And, and one of the reasons I use that term but you probably didn't see it show up a ton in the slides. Yeah. Is actually because Holly and I had a lot of dialogue um, about what what that how that what that term speaks to. And mm -hmm. the reason is that psychological safety is a term that's actually in the um uh, organizational psychology literature. It's really a term that is supposed to be relevant to organizations and workplaces. Okay. And it felt perhaps um, we really wrestled with how do we think about the early childhood environment. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, Holly too in measure, but I especially am not comfortable with how we talk about school environments mm -hmm. as a parallel to the family. That we name teachers as creating the same attachment relationships, same mm -hmm. caring as do parents, that we call classrooms families. Um, it happens in the workplace too. And the reason mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't like it is because it is not authentic. Mm -hmm. um, school environments, though we do a lot of work to buffer this, are inherently stressful to children. Mm -hmm. They are simply structurally, this, I, this way that we educate children, structurally, it's not a developmentally engaged way for children to learn. It's what we have. Mm -hmm. sort of mm -hmm. But I feel that um, if we are to really do a deep dive into the idea of belongingness and respect what children are intuiting and how they are learning to adapt and belong in their various mm -hmm. environments and the developmental phenomenon of intersubjectivity, which we can talk about, I think it is incumbent on adults to frame relationships in truly authentic, clear ways that don't try to erase or make invisible power dynamics that exist, mm. but instead really empower children, uh, really honor their agency in learning how to navigate these things. So psychological safety is a term from the organizational literature. Mm -hmm. And what I like about it is that that literature speaks very clearly to the idea that there are environmental uh, indicators of an environment that is psychologically safe and promotes belongingness so that the individuals in it can reach whatever the shared goal of the environment is. So in the organizational literature, organizational psych literature, the idea is that if you create a workplace that is psychologically safe, people are <clears throat> able to be creative problem solvers and innovate. And so in a school environment, instead of creating this faux idea that more intimacy should inherently make every child in that environment safe to do whatever the thing is, mm -hmm. sensibly to learn, except that in a lot of school environments, actually, that isn't the goal anymore, right? Mm -hmm. 
if we name clearly what is the goal that we have here, and sometimes it's things like don't disrupt other people, sit still, finish your work, do the test. We have to be authentic. This is what mm -hmm. we're doing. We all name it. What variables have to exist in the environment so that everyone here is safe to meet those goals? That to me is a basic question. Now we can talk about school environments. This is sort of where Holly and I landed is like, let's make them, let's think of them, not make them. This is what they are. They are a third thing, right? They are not the family. Mm -hmm. They are not the neighborhood community. They are not a workplace. They exist as a thing. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn how to name the thing. In our own schools, in our own classrooms, what is our shared goal here? How do we keep that vision central? And then what does everybody need? What are some ways to create a psychologically safe environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, <clears throat> excuse me. That reminds me of the, um, what there was just a note I wrote. You talked about humane education and uh, I, that was a note I jotted down um, that I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about. And that, so I think what you're doing, what you just did is sort of a lead up to maybe talking about what humane education would look like and why it's important. Yeah, and in some ways too, I'll, I'll name that for me, thinking about these things in the environment, how you create a psychologically safe environment, this is my pushback in some ways to, uh, well, pushback's a strong word. I, you know, I think there being an existing conversation about how to be trauma-informed, mm -hmm. uh, how to engage in social emotional learning is so powerful and important. We didn't even have that at one point, mm -hmm. right? I've been studying trauma for nearly two decades and it doesn't feel like that long ago when I would tell people what I studied, people would say, do you travel to third world countries? Oh boy. Uh -huh. uh, you know, and now we understand it as what it is. Stress and trauma are very normal, regular, regularly occurring human phenomena. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when people say, what does it mean to be trauma-informed? My first question is, what does it mean to be humane? What does it mean to create an environment where people can be reasonably assured that they will not be at risk of harm? And that if they are, this is a space where they can work with others to mitigate harm. And so to me, it's basic things that are signal to the child. Um, and basic maybe is not the word. It's straightforward things mm -hmm. that we signal to children about how an environment is safe for them. Um, and sometimes it's things like believing kids when they say, I can't sit still right now, or I need to use the bathroom for the 12th time, or <laughs> I just need to sit out in the hallway or I need to walk around the school and come back. How can we create trust that will then promote their own sense of agency, which then promotes the idea that we are here, we are in it together. Um, and then it's things like how are children celebrated? How are their families and cultural communities not only tolerated, um, not only sort of tokenized, what does it really look like to, for example, celebrate Black joy mm -hmm. here and right now? Mm -hmm. uh, so what does it look like? Well, <laughs> these are things that 
I would be really remiss to say this is my expertise and I'm going to explain it. Yeah. Where I've evolved myself on this is that um, there's lots of wisdom there. In fact, there's this great report that was just put out. Danielle Blevins is the lead author on it. It's the uh, Center for, I'm going to mess this up. I'll pull it up for you. <laughs> Center for Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health, I believe. She just put out a report with some colleagues on promoting Black joy for infants and toddlers. Uh-huh. Um, it is uh, Black joy sort of subcategorized into thinking about Black brilliance, Black beauty, uh-huh. Black innovation. Um, there's one more that I'm missing that I know is important. Um, so in this chapter, my colleagues and I just wrote, we asked ourselves that question. Mm-hmm. What would it look like for us in the roles that we hold to center those things? There's this piece that came out several years ago um, called On Brilliance. I'm also completely forgetting the names of the authors right now, uh, which I hope to remember. My colleague, Dr. Lauren Mims, who's at NYU, shared this piece with me. And the crux of it is, if we were to assume the brilliance of Black children as the starting axiom, what does that change about everything else that we assume, right? If Black children are routinely uh, showing up with lower test scores, if parents in my research, Black parents are routinely scoring lower on the measures that I'm using, if I assume brilliance, then I have to take a look at what is wrong. Mm-hmm. The measures are not giving me the information I need, for mm-hmm. example, fallible mm-hmm. and racist. The tests that the kids are taking are not tapping into the brilliance in my classroom. Um, when I'm working with young children and their families, if I assume brilliance in that family, I can observe and see and be a partner in all kinds of strategies and processes that I otherwise may not have noticed if my starting axiom is to look for problems that I solve. Mm-hmm. That's it, such, it a, such a good, relating. yeah, really a, a good lens that um, I think doesn't require all that much work on our part to just, <laughs> to just reframe it and say, um, yeah, am I assuming brilliance or am I assuming deficit before I look at any of this, this stuff? Um, thank you. I tried to Google on brilliance so we could find the authors and it didn't work. And I was trying, I didn't, I was, you know, still listening to you. I thought I could sneak it in. Um, so, but, but sort of that brings me to, uh, at least what feels to me like an okay segue to go into another, yes. another piece, because um, one of the things that, that I remember too, was um, the idea that um, so often when there is, you know, behavior, something we don't understand about what's happening with the child um, that we're working with, the tendency is to say there must be something going on at home. And, and you said, I think, no, there's something going on right here, (laughs) right in front of you. And I think that we really get stuck when we try to think about being inclusive of family culture, it turns into that, well, what's going on at home question, um, which, which isn't going to lead to a real positive 
uh, connection with that family. That is very important. Mm -hmm. And also you have, we, I think we really have to see if we're going to be trauma informed, Mm -hmm. a couple of things. One is that there's an existing mismatch between many families and systems of of schooling. Mm -hmm. And that's for as long as we've had public education in this country. And so it's a legacy that's built in. So we have Mm -hmm. to know that. Um, We tend to, I think, especially, I think, especially if you're white, you tend to romanticize the school environment Mm -hmm. um, as the, as the place the childhood happens. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is just not true, especially for many children in this country. Um, And so I think, again, it's a little bit of a grief process to go through to say harm is happening here. Mm, that's such a important I, way of I, stating that. But I can be a person mm-hmm. who contributes differently. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we really have to understand, and this is also hard because we have this psychological science that seems to be showing us what we think we already know, which is that emotional and behavioral suppression in the service of rational thought is mental health, right? We lean on all the science that we think illustrates our point. But the thing about science is that you can make a Lego house in a lot of ways from the data, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's this like really cool graphic I'm referring to that like shows that process. Mm -hmm. And so we have this really built-in idea that to be trauma-informed is to see a behavioral problem, to look for trauma outside the environment coming in mm-hmm. that is contributing to the problem, and to teach the child in this environment to downregulate. Now, there's a there's a lot of problems with that. One is that innately, developmentally, children are seeking belongingness everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. And they're very adaptive because that is such an important goal, even more important than this idea that children are trying to be safe everywhere. I think that is a huge fallacy. I don't think humans work that hard at being safe, actually. Mm. I think we are constantly trying to belong. Okay. And so if you are framing things in that way, if a child is apparently to you dysregulated in some way, you could probably be more effective looking at the here and now Mm -hmm. for how this environment is not a match. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, thinking about grief in that, in that conversation about an adult or a teacher in that position, having to grieve when they, when they kind of come to terms with the fact that harm may be happening um, in that early childhood space or that school, um, that that's another thing that I noticed when I was, uh, so I'm, I'm researching mental health in, um, and play specifically. And then, um, also I've been developing this class. I teach at a community college. Well, you know that cause I met you at the higher ed forum. <laughs> so I teach college and we're writing a brand new class about supportive interactions and guiding behavior. And they want trauma to be a big piece of, of that trauma-informed practices to be a big piece of that. And uh, everything is about trauma in the family, toxic stress in the family or the community that they, you know, the neighborhood that they live in. I haven't yet found anything that includes that there could be 
some, some stress and trauma happening in those other spaces, the school or the childcare or, or wherever that might be. That families, especially black families, and this is what I know I'm reading about, but also I'm sure other communities Uh are, have a historical legacy of, as serving as the safe space mm. children um, when racism and other threats to belongingness mm-hmm. oh, wow. exist elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, families are doing a lot of labor and nurturance and investment. So we have things to learn, in fact, from the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's that's. I don't know that that's hard for some of us. I talk to, I talk a lot about teacher ego and playing teacher and uh the script for that is not to be looking for belongingness. The script for that is to be in control of the space and control of the people in the space. Um so it's just really listening to you I think is going to flip the script for some people um who might be listening to this episode. Um, I, I, I just want to listen to you talk. <laughs> what else do you want to talk well, about? And, and, and let me say this because I know when I say these things and people start to feel a little bit discombobulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What am I supposed to do? What, what do I do? Yeah. I think the first place to start if this conversation is resonating is to observe your procedures and your protocols and your way of relating mm-hmm. and just start asking yourself, what are the threats to belongingness here, either uh-huh. in relationship with this person, in this environment? What do I know about what threatens belongingness? Uh-huh. What you've been asking is what threatens mental health? What you I'm asking the same question, what threatens mental health? But uh-huh. I'm asking you to say what threatens belongingness? Mm-hmm. What you've been asking is what threatens behavioral control Mm -hmm. and if you're willing to be courageous and just for a short period of time take that question off the table Mm -hmm. observe different shapes and presentations of behavior notice where belongingness is shaped really dive into that thinking you can always come back to the crowd management question Mm -hmm it's real I get it I've yeah. been a I get it <laughs> um spend a little bit of time just wondering about that question knowing you are safe to do so mm-hmm. um I was no so then as soon as you said knowing you're safe to do so I started to think but would they really you know what if what if they're worried about an administrator coming in and seeing uh things are a little looser than they were a couple days ago or um well, now what you're naming uh-huh. is that we all exist in ecologies uh-huh. for us to be able to offer children true belongingness the system has to facilitate belongingness for everyone mm-hmm. because harm trickles down we pass it on to people who have less power than us mm-hmm. when we experience it mm-hmm. So if you are feeling for yourself, this sounds great, but now you have another point of potential intervention in your system. Now you've created another opportunity for yourself. (laughs) How do I work through that problem? Mm -hmm. What would it take? 
Yeah. How do I belong? Um, so this is now taking me to, um, something I hear. So, so again, I'm teaching early childhood. So most of the students I I'm working with are, um, working with children like five and under childcare programs, head starts, um, those kinds of things. And when I start to talk about, um, trauma and, and stress and, um, we actually, one of the classes we use a textbook by Mike Huber. Well, it's not a textbook. It's a regular book, but I use it as my text by Mike Huber, um, where he, the whole kind of premise of the book is inclusion is something we do. Belonging is something children feel. Um, so that was sort of the starting point, but what I get, what I'm getting to is, um, well, teachers are so stressed right now and mm -hmm. there's, there's such a shortage of early childhood uh, staff and they make so little money and they have all the same kinds of stresses and and it's almost presented sometimes as an excuse not to think about things the way you're suggesting with in our interactions and our expectations and our spaces for children i am very hopeful that actually what i'm saying can have the impact of reducing burden mm -hmm. Um, because some of the things folks are investing in the aspirations we're creating and we're not creating in like a, just don't create those, but <laughs> that we're, uh, collaboratively creating these uh -huh. expectations are not only arbitrary, not in the service of wellness, mm -hmm. not in the service of learning even, right. um, but are, also, as you're describing, for lots of reasons, unattainable. This is another thing we do to ourselves is that we describe stress as an intervention point that is completely preventable. Mm. And then also feel like we need validation for the fact that it's not. And so what if we were to use those powerful cognitive appraisal strategies that we are turning inward so often, mm -hmm. which is like, oh, I feel this thing. Am I allowed to feel it? Is it real? Is it relevant? Maybe I should just not feel it. <laughs> well, I'm so healthy now. Yeah. <laughs> we use cognitive appraisal to say, what is the total system? What mm -hmm. are the, all the shared goals? What is my role and for why? Asking some of these questions I think, well, I know because I, I do this one-on-one -on -one with people, it leads you to a place where you become actually unburdened in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it reduces a lot of mental load and shame and fear and a, an increasingly relational environment promotes mental health for everyone. Mm -hmm. That sense of belongingness for everyone. And when you have that, it promotes all these other things that we are so wanting for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Peace and courage. You just can't force those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, it's, um, it's about time to wrap up, but I want to ask um, one last, we'll give you one last opportunity. Is there something you really wanted to share that we haven't gotten to today? Um, some sort of, ending message that you that you would send to folks 
I think get clear about your values and your mission, write a mission statement for yourself. Mm community, do it with the children, do it for yourself and your life. Um, I joke sometimes that if I ever write a book, the title is going to be, what is it we're even doing here? <laughs> because we have to ask ourselves uh-huh. that question or else we make ourselves crazy with all the shoulds, mm. the race to be expert, um, spend some time with yourself belonging first to you and, and what, what you feel is your meaning and impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I hope from there, there are new pathways that emerge. Yeah. Yeah, That's such a good way. Um, Belonging first to you, I think is really, um, could be really powerful, really good thing to think about. So if, if people want more of you, (laughs) where do they find you? What have you got out there? A couple of things. One, you can find me at Dr. Erica with a K, Convo, C-O-N-V-O, um, D-R-E-R-I-K-A, C-O-N-V-O, <laughs> on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, those are where I'm most active. Yeah. Um, also, if you go to uh, our website, myconvo.org, you can book a one-on-one session anytime that works for you. We've tried to make it as accessible and easy as possible. Uh-huh. And also you can reach out to me there for uh, group-based kinds of things like workshops and consultations. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for uh, for spending time with me this morning and for, um, uh, you know, walking through all of this, all of these ways of thinking and being for, uh, for the folks who are listening. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to hear you again and just getting to talk with you. Um, so I appreciate so wonderful. that. You are such an amazing convo partner. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, now I'm all flustered. I don't know how to end the conversation. So I'll just end it. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd. We'll see you again next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.